0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 16th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today we're also joined by Peter Marks. Peter trained in hematology and oncology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, then had positions at Brigham and Women's and at Yale, worked in the pharmaceutical industry, and then joined the Food and Drug Administration's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, or CBER which he now directs. Peter's very engaged with the medical community and was recently elected to the National Academy of Medicine. Peter, before we get into some specific questions, among CBER's responsibilities is, of course, vaccine regulation. So what have the past couple of years been like for you and your colleagues?
1: Thanks for having me, and thanks for that question. It's been an adventure. In fact, it's not just been a job, it has been an adventure. We have had a tremendous number of challenges, vaccine submissions uh, for COVID-19 that were reviewed in record time to get to emergency use authorizations and then further reviewed in record time to get to biologics license applications for two of them, all at the same time while trying to keep our usual work moving along at the same time. And so people have had to work quite hard in our review divisions trying to keep up. We've obviously had to negotiate Um, some of the challenges in our environment to get our job done. So at this point, I think it was not anything I ever had expected, but it has been, I think, a very good journey towards trying to benefit public health. Peter, I just want
2: to give a shout out there because two years ago, almost to the week, I remember when you and the FDA staff had to work through Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend for the very first EUA for a COVID vaccine. And you know how that was greeted with such joy afterward, there was a real pressure for people to get that vaccine, to get it out and start saving lives. So the FDA did an amazing job.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I think we have an incredible group of reviewers. That effort was the combined effort of over 100 people at FDA in various roles working together to deal with a lot of challenges in a very short period of time, to do something which I think really did have a real positive impact on public health pretty quickly after we did it. So I think the group felt compelled to get it done, and getting it done was really an important thing for public health.
3: Peter, thinking a few months earlier than the emergency use authorization of the vaccines that Eric refers to, CBER also came out with guidance to sort of set the bar for the level of evidence needed for vaccine emergency use authorization. What was that like in setting the standards needed for the community in the context of an epidemic that we still did not understand?
1: So this has been, I think, one of the real challenges of the pandemic is you have something that is taking lives, causing hospitalizations, causing disruption of normal societal functions. And the question is, what is the level of evidence that we really should be using here? And I think we decided early on in the journey that we were going to require a reasonably high level of evidence because in general for prophylactic vaccines, when people take them, they want to know that, first of all, they are safe within our general definition of safe. There's no perfect safety, but you know what I mean, that they are not likely to cause any long-term harm and that they have a reasonable likelihood of being effective. Safety, I think, was not so hard to get people to understand. The issue of needing some minimal efficacy or effectiveness was a little bit of a challenge because different regulators across the globe didn't even agree on it. Some were saying, well, 30% efficacy would be enough for a given regulator. We picked 50% efficacy with a lower bound of the 95% confidence interval of 30% so that we at least had some bar to say, look, if we're gonna deploy this vaccine, we at least are gonna be somewhere (laughs) near what influenza vaccine would be on a reasonable year. And I think it did us well because it prevented us from going down paths of using evidence that would have led to even more vaccine hesitancy than we saw in the United States to begin with. So it was a challenge because there were forces outside of FDA that might have liked us to move faster without adhering to requiring the evidence that we needed to get there from large clinical trials. But at the end, it was really important to have that evidence because I think, as was noted by Eric earlier, when we got there in November, we had data from a really large clinical trial that looked for all the world, like the clinical trials that support other licensed vaccines. And granted, it did not have the usual six to 12 months of safety follow-up, but it did have the minimum two-month median follow-up that we said we would need because that's when The majority of adverse events would be seen. And it had the robustness of showing when you had 90 to 95 percent efficacy from two different trials in 30 to 45,000 people each, it led to a sense of confidence that we were able to get people, millions upon millions of people to accept the vaccines, even in the setting of a lot of what I would consider societal swirl at the time about vaccination and other issues.
3: I realize we may go long, but, and you don't have to answer this. So Peter, I think that the agency creating a standard was incredibly helpful to the community and to the trust of the public. And that was incredibly difficult, but incredibly helpful. How do you contrast that with how you struggle with CCP, convalescent plasma, something else that the CBER has managed but is a different problem in terms of its development and its application. I can only imagine the complexity of the discussions that you all have gone through as you think about treatments versus prophylactics, novel entities versus things that we've used for eons.
1: Well, interestingly, I think convalescent plasma was an excellent training ground for vaccines. We did that first. And I think I would say is that We realized in retrospect from convalescent plasma that we probably should have stuck to our guns early on in the development of convalescent plasma much more firmly than we ultimately did. We knew going into convalescent plasma that you really needed high titer plasma if you were likely to have efficacy. And we also knew from studies that had been done years previously in Argentina for Argentine hemorrhagic fever, that if you were going to have it really be useful, that was the one randomized studies that, that are, actually, me, I think there were two, but those were the randomized studies available showing good efficacy that if you were going to use it, it had to be high titer and it also had to be given early. And unfortunately, what ended up happening was in the desperation for something to help people and in essentially following some literature that came out from sources that you could use it in more advanced disease. Those were not controlled trials in small numbers of individuals. We allowed it to be used in more advanced disease. And what we ended up finding out several months later is after using it in more advanced disease and after using plasma that we didn't know the titer of until after the fact, we learned what we should have known at the beginning, which was that you have to give high titer plasma early in the course of disease if you want to see an effect. And I think we've learned that now. We have also learned that the convalescent plasma is most useful right now, I would say, in the immunocompromised individuals, particularly those who have essentially no B-cell mediated immunity, chemologic malignancies patients where it does seem to have a unique place in our therapeutic armamentarium there but it's a pretty narrow place. So we learned a lot. And I think some of the missteps that occurred during our work with convalescent plasma, they came to benefit us when we realized that we really do need to stick to our guns about certain things, because we really need to make sure that the products that we put our imprimatur on, (laughs) that we say are going to be safe and effective are safe and effective for the indications.
2: But Peter, it gets to a point of how you define safe and effective. What's safe and effective for pancreatic cancer isn't going to be the same as what's safe and effective for a group of healthy individuals for whom you're trying to protect against disease. So it is a sliding scale and it kind of gets at what we're saying. There weren't any options early on for treating COVID. And in a vacuum. I suspect that there was a little bit of a sliding scale.
1: You're absolutely right. And that's exactly what the emergency use authorization gave us, was this this ability to use this sliding scale of efficacy. And at the time, yes, that was what we used. And I guess to try to give ourselves a little bit of leeway, probably for the first few months when we were really without anything else, it may have made sense. I think If I had to go back and think about this, my one regret was not spending more time at the very beginning, essentially forcing the issue of getting titers on the plasma that we were using. Now, in retrospect, we use that to do a pseudo randomization to figure out some issues about efficacy on the back end. But I agree with you, Eric, that it's true that early on in the development, there was nothing else. And we set out to work with Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins to put together the expanded access program because we were overwhelmed with individual patient requests. There was a period early on in the pandemic when we were getting three to 400 single patient IND requests a day, and that was absolutely overwhelming. I know because our review division was overwhelmed, my deputy and I staffed this on the weekend, and. It was all day and night and day that these requests were coming in. So your point is well taken that in the absence of something, people wanted to try something. And given that there were these case reports, it fell to convalescent plasma at the time.
0: So getting back to the emergency use authorizations that you were talking about, one of the practical issues that physicians face is navigating the difference between the EUA and full approval. So what do these terms mean in general and for individual practitioners?
1: So I think to try to explain this to a practitioner, that our approvals for vaccines are based on biologics license applications that the agency reviews. And that review includes the quality, the safety, and the efficacy information. Uh, It involves inspections. And it adheres to, actually, the principles that were set forth in 1902. Uh, and the Biologics Control Act, that biologics have to be safe, pure, and potent, and by extension, they have to be effective. And so those products that are approved meet that standard. Now, emergency use authorization came about after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, where Congress decided that there might be situations such as chemical, biologic, or radionuclear events, COVID-19 being a biologic event, where you could declare an emergency and then potentially use products in development that would normally be investigational that show promise to address an unmet need at that time. And in this case, they would have to meet a standard that they may be effective and that the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks. Very different standard. And I think this goes to the issue of there is a bit of a sliding scale because you can see that you could have things that meet that standard just barely, or you can have things that are practically at the level of being approved products. And we set the vaccine standard closer to the side of approved products. And you can see that obviously for therapeutics, you might decide that you don't have to be quite as far over the scale towards an approved product. So an emergency use authorization is a flexible way that we can deal with a public health emergency. And for vaccines, we've set the bar pretty high, but for therapeutics, it can be somewhat variable where we set that bar. And I think that's why it's important for physicians using emergency use authorized products to actually kind of know the data about what they're using in order to understand the strength of the evidence there.
3: So, Peter, trust is one of the most important parameters we're all dealing with, especially with our colleagues and with the public. Are you saying that products authorized through an EUA mechanism are less safe?
1: I would say that we would like to make sure that they are not less safe. And certainly for the vaccines, they are every bit as safe as we can determine them to be given the duration of follow-up that we had before we were able to authorize them. And we try to make up for any lack of information prior to authorizing by going ahead and doing very good post-authorization surveillance. And so I think for vaccines, the good news is that by and large, most of the adverse effects that one is gonna see are seen within two months of giving those vaccines. And that's why we came up with the two-month median follow-up And by and large, I think for therapeutic products, we've put a premium on making sure that they are safe as well. But the statute allows us to have a little more leeway in the depth of the safety databases that we have for therapeutic products, or for that matter, vaccines for emergency use authorized products. I think the key message is that for vaccines, we took the approach that Given everyone's concern, normal, healthy people about getting these vaccines, we would need to be very close to our biologic license application standard. And that's why that two month median follow up, very good post market surveillance. And it seems to have done us well because, you know, post market surveillance for the mRNA vaccines, it's true, we picked up the signals for the rare cases of anaphylaxis and for myocarditis relatively soon but we haven't seen other major issues with the mRNA vaccines, some issues with other vaccines. So I think at the end of the day, the system worked reasonably well.
3: My own view as a practitioner caring for patients is that safety was never really in question. The bar always seemed similar to what I'm used to. It was efficacy where you use the flexibility of the EUA, especially in the therapeutic arena, when we had patients who were incredibly sick and dying and no therapeutic options to allow flexibility where there is some evidence base to use novel therapies given the severity of illness we were facing. But at least in my own practice, I've not seen you all cut corners on the safety assessment.
1: I think that's exactly right. And that goes to the robustness of the data sets that we've had and also to the nature of the products that we're authorizing in these settings. And it's also why products that could even potentially have more safety issues raise more eyebrows and would get more attention here. So I think you're absolutely right. We've tried to make sure that there are not safety issues. And thankfully that's been reasonably straightforward for things like monoclonal antibodies, and the antivirals that have been authorized to date.
0: How long can a product continue with an EUA designation? Is it time limited? It's limited
1: by the renewals of the declarations that allow us to make products available under emergency use authorization. There are two separate declarations that can be made, one of a public health emergency and one regarding making available the products. And so things can stay available for quite some time. Eventually though, (laughs) eventually, you can't go on in perpetuity. Eventually things will have to convert over to approved products or they'll have to come off the market. And this will be a decision that will be made about essentially when to end the public health emergency. And then another decision about when to transition the products over to moving them towards approved products. That is actually not quite as easy as it sounds. It's not like you can just flip a switch and move emergency use authorized products over to approved products because there are some of the things that need to happen for an approved product that may not have been done for an emergency use authorized product in terms of submission of some of the studies that we might normally require, some of the inspections that might normally be required By and large, much of the work will have been similar, but there are formalities that we'll have to go through that could take a little bit of time to convert things over.
3: So, Peter, you indicate there needs to be a declaration of emergency. That has allowed the rubric for the COVID response, the monkeypox responses, two recent examples that have leveraged the EUA mechanism. But there are many other epidemic threats that we are struggling with. For example, RSV and influenza are spreading rapidly and causing severe illness. RSV has very limited therapeutics, yet there are many in development. How do we think about accessing potential therapies for our patients who are quite sick, where the cupboard is bare in terms of treatment options?
1: It's a very good question. I think it's a balancing act of what we do by things that are studied under clinical research using investigational new drug applications where you can have large trials ongoing to enroll patients in. And that's the preferred way to get the kind of randomized data that we would often like for new treatments. And so that is an excellent access mechanism when you have limited numbers of individuals. A step beyond that is that if you have clinical trials ongoing, but you still have other individuals who might not have direct access to those clinical trials because of their location or because they don't meet the criteria for those clinical trials, we have expanded access programs, and those have to be carefully balanced with the clinical trial program that's ongoing so that they don't disrupt it. But those are ways to get access in the absence of an emergency use authorization which essentially allows you to expand that use much further without informed consent.
2: Peter, I want to go back to the opposite of what Lindsay asked me, stopping using something that's an authorized drug. There certainly have been authorized agents where the authorization has been withdrawn during the COVID epidemic. How is that decision made? Who starts that process?
1: The ones that I'm aware of, they actually were started within the agency because when we have things under emergency use authorization, the statute actually asks us and tells us that we have to constantly reevaluate whether the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks and whether we still believe that they may be effective. And if looking at things based on incoming data, we start to see that these products are either not effective or they have safety concerns that make them have potential risks that outweigh the benefits we have the ability to remove them in a way that would normally be if they were approved products it would be a challenge but because they're emergency use authorized it becomes a simple matter of withdrawing their authorization so obviously we will listen to outside advice on this sometimes we get information from providers from medical groups medical associations. But in large part during the pandemic, I think when we've taken these actions, it's because we saw something that troubled us in the efficacy of the product, and that changed the benefit-risk calculus.
0: The performance of vaccines has varied throughout the outbreak. Initially, many vaccines were highly effective at preventing both infection and serious illness. But vaccines now seem to have retained their ability to protect against hospitalization and death, but they're less able to prevent symptomatic infection. Given these changes, how does FDA think about setting standards as new vaccines come up for approval?
1: That is a fantastic question. So we are lucky that we still have protection or appear to have protection against hospitalization and death from these vaccines, despite the fact that we have ever more immune evasive variants of sars coronavirus 2 circulating. I think as we move forward, I think we'll be thinking about what the next generation of vaccines should be able to do in order to be called better than the ones we have. And in a large sense, we're looking at the depth, the breadth, and the duration of the protection that they will bring. We will potentially be looking at whether they bring something more than just preventing hospitalization and death. Do they reduce symptomatic disease? Do some of them even have a beneficial effect on reduction of transmission? That would be a tall order, but it might make a huge difference, even if a vaccine could modestly reduce transmission, given the number of variants that keep spinning off. We would love to see something along those lines. Will it be a vaccine that has mucosal immunity? Possibly that provides mucosal immunity that is durable. We'd love to see it. I think what you'll see us do is look at the totality of data that are submitted to see if something is measurably improving over what we have, at least during this time of emergency use authorization. Just personally, I think that we are selling ourselves a little bit short right now by not spending more time looking for better vaccines in a systematic way, because the current vaccines, while we're incredibly grateful for them, while people should be encouraged to make sure they go out and make sure they're up to date on their vaccines, get the updated vaccine if appropriate, because that's what we have at hand. I think we do need a better generation of vaccines for SARS coronavirus too, much the same way as we need better generation of vaccines for influenza. But in this case, the reason why it's so urgent, at least for me to SARS coronavirus two is we see that this virus continues to surprise us. And I just worry that so far, Thankfully, the surprises have not led to loss of T cell mediated immunity in the general population. Perhaps it's made it more challenging in the older population, and that's the more sensitive population. But if we get to a place where somehow the virus evolves far enough that we lose that T cell mediated protection that we're getting or lose even a significant portion of it, that could be quite troubling. So I do think we need to be thinking about trying to keep ahead of this virus. It's a hundred nanometer particle that seems to be able to move at a very, very fast pace.
0: So in that regard, what kinds of directions do you think we should be pursuing to address the issue?
1: So I think we probably need a twin headed effort. One effort needs to be to go further along understanding correlates of protection that go with immunity to SARS coronavirus 2, I think we've obviously settled on antibodies as the best tool we have, but antibody levels are not telling us about what the long-term protection of a vaccine will be. And right now, in order to understand that, because we don't have a correlate that helps us there, we're going to have to rely on clinical studies that are going to go on for a while. It'd be nice to have better correlates as we move forward. And the second piece is going to be to have what I would consider a platform agnostic uh, search for the best vaccines that might actually provide us with that long-term broad immunity. I think it would be a mistake to get very wedded to the technologies that have served us early on or to prior technologies. I think we need to have another open-minded search for what might best protect us here. And it might be combinations of vaccines too. So I think we have to be very open-minded here because ultimately, if we don't, I worry that this virus will get ahead of us. And there's not a lot of bandwidth in people's psyches to deal with a lot more COVID-19 issues. So, I mean, I would hate to see in a year or two another outbreak that leads to the kinds of deaths that we saw during some of the height of the past two years of the pandemic.
2: Peter, when it comes to Biomarkers of response to vaccines, the FDA plays a very important role in that because it's basically setting the ground rules for people who might manufacture a vaccine as to what would be required for authorization or approval. So, how does that process
1: work? That's another great question. I mean, part of this is that we try to look at the best available science, and our scientists are constantly looking at what we believe to be immune correlates of protection. Some of them We have our own laboratories, which do applied scientific research that are looking at correlates and trying to understand them better. We're very open to working with our partners at NIH, CDC, and for that matter, academic partners to look for the best tools to understand the immune response. And so I think ultimately, though, when we settle down on a correlate, it's going to have to be something that we can feel is well validated so that we'll feel comfortable using it for approvals, which is a tall order because it means we have to feel comfortable that it's going to really correlate with the clinical outcomes. And some people find that a little challenging because it's not just enough to have a study in 10, 20, or even 100 or 200 people. We need to feel really comfortable that the biomarker is going to really correlate with what we're going to see in terms of effectiveness in the real world.
3: Peter, you mentioned that we need to think about improving how our vaccines work and the immune response elicited. And one potential way is to use combination vaccines, which is very attractive. A challenge with that is you're dealing with different companies. How to overcome that incredible hurdle of getting companies that have different priorities and different views of risk to work together to solve these kinds of problems?
1: I think, again, these are my personal opinions, not those of the United States government, HHS or FDA, but my personal opinion is this is a place where government has a real role to play because early on, during the early days of Operation Warp Speed, the government was able to essentially set the stage for this is what needs to happen, And they have the ability, the government has the ability to essentially bang heads together and say, you've got to work together in support of public health, right? And that may need to happen here because we're down the line a little bit. There's the proprietary interests have started to take on their usual nature. And I think that is a unique role of government in this particular setting, in the interest of public health to potentially bring together vaccines that might be of benefit when used together in a way that they otherwise couldn't come together because partners wouldn't naturally agree upon co-development.
0: So COVID isn't the only emergency we're facing. Right now, there's an outbreak of Ebola in Uganda that's being caused by the Sudan species of the virus. So there are two vaccines that appear to be effective against the Zaire species of Ebola, the one that caused the very large outbreak in West Africa almost a decade ago but they wouldn't be predicted to be effective against the virus that's currently circulating in Uganda. So what can you tell us about the process of making a vaccine against a new disease and how and when would the FDA become involved in that process?
1: So the process is that some sponsor will decide to produce that vaccine. In this case, we are somewhat lucky that in the case of Ebola Sudan, there are three different vaccines that have been in early stages of development. And FDA's role here is to try to make sure that the appropriate access pathways are available. Now, for the types of outbreaks that we're talking about here, where the preferred approach right now, at least that I'm aware of, is to try to do what was done in the Zaire outbreak of trying to do ring vaccination. This is a place where a couple of different ways can be used to provide access Usually, it's going to be through a clinical trials method or equivalent, either through a bona fide clinical trial that's done, like the ring vaccination protocol that was done for Ebola Zaire, or through an expanded access type program, which again, makes the vaccine available for certain populations. I think from the standpoint of at least FDA, we would love to see these things in clinical trials because it's nicer to have data that can ultimately help us understand whether the vaccines are both safe and effective. So to the extent that they can be deployed in clinical trials, we try to support that. But obviously there is a lot of complexity there because we're working with foreign governments that have to have these deployed on their soils.
2: Peter, as I recall of the existing vaccines, correct me if I'm wrong here, only one of them sought FDA authorization. Is that correct? That's correct. How important is FDA approval or some sort of stamp of approval to these vaccines that are being used in endemic areas?
1: I think FDA is looked at as an important global regulator. And during the COVID-19 crisis, it actually was really something that I became much more impressed with than I ever was previously. And that's because Quite a number of countries called to look at because they were interested in our reviews and in how we came to our approval decisions. So I think we turn out to be a regulator that a lot of others baseline against. And if we have approved something, it makes it a lot easier for other regulators, particularly in smaller countries where they may not have anything like the FDA to approve the vaccine. So it is an important benchmark. Now, obviously, WHO has a role in this because they can do emergency use listing of vaccines once they're approved by a regulator. And that can happen if we've approved something. They can use our approval there or the EMA or other large regulators. But I think even independent of that WHO aspect, our regulatory approval is something that many countries look upon as kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval that something has passed a bar of safety and efficacy.
0: Peter, many people have very little insight into how the FDA works. With COVID, there's been a good deal of reporting of advisory group meetings and a lot of online interest, but meetings are only a small part of the process. So what would you say to people about how the FDA works and why people should have faith in the institution?
1: The FDA has been regulating vaccines for a long time. And in fact, the regulation of vaccines started prior to the actual Food and Drug Administration after the Biologic Control Act of 1902, which was passed because of some disasters with smallpox vaccine and diphtheria antitoxin. And our remit was to ensure the safety, purity, and potency of biologic products. And that's something that we have taken seriously over the years it was meant to be taken seriously because not only do we have licensure powers we also have the power to revoke licenses as well and to inspect facilities and that's what goes into our current process now which is we not only look at the safety and effectiveness data for vaccines we look at the manufacturing quality data we go out and inspect the facilities that are used to manufacture the vaccines not only the ones that are used to manufacture the vaccines, but also the ones that are used to fill, finish, put them into vials and ship them out. So we essentially look at that entire process. Not only do we do that, we do lot release on the vaccines. We make sure that what is in the vial is what is supposed to be in the vial. And that is an important piece of what we do. We also provide standards in certain areas. For instance, we provide companies with standards for influenza vaccine manufacture so that the influenza vaccines that are made from one manufacturer to the next are very similar so we have a pretty broad range of things we do in the vaccine arena in addition to which we do applied scientific research on everything from manufacturing technologies to product characterization to measuring the immune response and so it's a pretty broad breadth of a remit. All of that though is done with the knowledge that ultimately the public puts its trust in us that the products that come out that have our approval or in the case of emergency use authorization, our authorization are such that we are extremely confident that they have the safety and effectiveness that people have come to expect from medical products the United States. That is that they may not be absolutely perfect, but they are going to be as close as they can to kind of our ideal of safe and effective. And so our folks take that very seriously. And we have a group of public health professionals that take that task and that mission very seriously. So I think that's why I hope people will trust what we do, because people don't earn tremendously large salaries at FDA by and large, compared to what they could be earning elsewhere. But they feel a tremendous sense of pride that what they do makes a difference towards public health. And that I hope people can put their trust in.
0: Thanks very much for joining us today, Peter. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.